0: You're listening to Wonder Cupboard. What is science? Where does it come from? Is it a
1: cupboard? Hello, you're listening to Wonder Cupboard, currently one of six podcasts still being recorded face-to-face <laughs> uh, because we live together in in happy married bliss. <laughs> uh, my name's Ian.
0: My name is Eleanor.
1: And what are we going to be talking about this episode, Eleanor?
0: We're going to talk about sunbathing, Ah. which is topical in more ways than one. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I mean, it does seem like a century ago that we were discussing whether or not we should go outside and sun ourselves Mm -hmm. on the grass at the beginning of the pandemic. And there are other things that are also sort of topical, like, you know, Trump saying that sunlight cures Mm. COVID-19. I don't know if you remember that happy time.
1: Spoiler alert. It does not. (laughs) Correct. <laughs> uh,
0: um this is a one thing that people might remember from before the pandemic if if you can conceive of such a thing mm. as a time before the pandemic there was that people were sunbathing their anus <laughs> um it was simpler times
1: yes yeah there was this sort of thing that went viral about people well, they were claiming various health benefits from getting natural sunlight to the um, the taint. How are we <laughs> going to call it? The, t- the gooch? Yeah. Well, wow, this took a... I mean, this started pretty quick, didn't it, this episode? <laughs>
0: yeah. I just had to, you know, hit the ground running. Yeah.
1: Is this, does this count as a content warning?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, anuses. We all got them. It's true. Um, yeah, if, if you can avoid, like, picturing this. But what happened, yeah, is that people basically would just lie down with their butt cheeks spread (laughs) to allow sunlight into the inner circle.
1: (laughs) 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 It sounds like... The, a surefire way to get one of the most painful suntans you could possibly imagine it
0: does isn't it mm. um, so the, the official name of this practice is perineum tanning
1: oh I see yeah
0: and there were people on Instagram who were promoting it and so forth and they like allegedly oh, wait
1: sorry someone on Instagram promoting something which turns out to be not true
0: I know some absurd. kind of
1: medical quackery on Instagram <laughs> I simply will not hear of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What am I going to do with all these diet pills?
0: <laughs> what am I going to do with my JDAG is my yeah.
1: question. <laughs> well, definitely don't do what they recommend you do with it. <laughs> yeah,
0: you can even say, well, just stick it up your... Because that's kind mm. of... Yeah. So anyway, so th- the claim around this was that 30 seconds of butt sunning <laughs> would give you the same benefits as uh, staying in the sunlight for a whole day.
1: Oh, you, all those benefits.
0: All those benefits. Um, and and the idea was that this was an ancient Taoist practice, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, when I read that, I was like, okay, Google, let's <laughs> see where we're at with this. Of course it's not. Because... Um, uh, people were not stupid <laughs> yeah. a long time ago, just because it was a long time ago. They were not dumb for that. So the main source for disbelief, in case you're uh, you're wondering, is a book called The Tao of Sexology, The Book of Infinite Wisdom, <laughs> by Dr. Stephen T. Chang, which was published in the year of my birth, 1986. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so obviously it's bullshit. But what is true is is that Taoist practice did promote sunning yourself as a way to stay in good health.
1: Mm. Which is true to an extent.
0: Yes. Yes, it is. We'll talk about it later on as Mm. well, about the benefit of sunshine. But of course, it promotes the um, production of vitamin D in your your system, which is good for your immune system. And there are other claims as well that we're going to talk about. So, but the way they did it, in Taoism in was quite intriguing, I think. For men, specifically men, they they were instructed to stand um, in the early morning sunshine, holding a piece of paper with the character for sun written on it. The piece of paper was then soaked in water and eaten for maximum uh, sunlight absorption.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Women were supposed to do it with moonlight instead. So there was, ah. that was quite... And th- there is also some evidence that Chinese medicine has always been careful to consider circadian rhythms in its practice, which is something that is still uh, considered good for medicine. Mm. Um, of course, we have to note that Taoist medicine didn't work like Western medicine. It wasn't about curing. It was about preventing illness. So it was a way to keep in good health. The idea is sunlight. Like would cure mood disorders also comes from that era in China. There are also accounts of similar practices in uh, what is now modern Turkey. So between the second and first century before Christ, Aratus of Cappadocia was among the first to identify bipolar disorder essentially. You know, he said this is some kind of condition that people have permanently that it is characterized by mania on one hand and melancholy on the other hand that alternate at the same time. And he prescribed for people when they were in a melancholic sort of condition to lay in the sun, which again it was not outlandish at all, like this is still something that is used as as we'll see later on. Some baths were used also in India, in Persia, Rome, Greece. Egypt, like it was very much very widespread practice. Specifically in classic Greece and Rome, um, there was a religious relationship between the sun and medicine. So the uh, Hippocratic Oath, which is the oath that doctors uh, pledge, starts with a swear by Apollo, who was also the god of light. He was also the god of many other things because he was the national god of Greece, so he was pretty much in charge. Right. <laughs> um, traditionally, it was also believed that Hippocrates himself was a descendant of Apollo through Asclepius, who was the god of medicine. So it would be this kind of genealogy of medicine that comes from light and sunlight to Hippocrates himself. Ironically, Hippocrates was also one of the first people to describe sunstroke. He described it as a paralysis induced by excessive exposure to light, to sunlight. As we said, in moderation, sunbaths were deemed beneficial. Greek athletes would prepare for the Olympics by exposing themselves to the sunshine as well. Mm-hmm. I, 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 my guess is also that they would look really hot. And that was part of it because, you know, they would oil themselves as well for Mm -hmm. the Olympics. There was very much an aesthetic component to the Olympics. And in case you don't know, they did um, perform naked. So there was definitely an aesthetic pleasure in seeing the Olympics as well as um, cheering them on. One thing that I read at some point was a passage from one of Seneca's letters to Lucilius, who was another Stoic philosopher and friend. So in these letters, A, are amazing, because Seneca just tells them, tells him everything that he does on a daily basis. Like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go for lunch with my dad's, and then we're going to sacrifice an ox, and then <laughs> we're going to go to the games.
1: Um, much the texting teenager of, of the times
0: yeah and, and these letters also had a function of um curating your own self so mm. it was a way to keep watch on practices that made you feel better and you would hold each other accountable on those practices right so in a way it was also the fitness app of the of the time
1: yeah yeah and journaling that sort of that sort of thing yeah, a, a, a journal where you're forcing someone to read or your crap. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I used to feel that way about Facebook sometimes, but um, <laughs> I'm not on it anymore. Ha ha. Um, so yes, there's, there's a, a passage in one of these letters where Seneca is like, "Oh, I we went to the beach this morning, and I, I felt really good afterwards. Like my my lungs were feeling a bit um, stuffed, and then afterwards I felt better. So, you know." I might see whether I will get taken there tomorrow, which like initially I thought you know you picture Seneca having a nice walk on the beach, hmm. but it is clear that he was not having a nice walk on the beach. It was just that like his servants were kind of transporting him on some kind of thing along the <laughs> beach. And so he was literally just about the sun and the air. It wasn't about exercise or anything.
1: It's funny, isn't it, how a seaside holiday could possibly m- be more therapeutic <laughs> if you were being carried there. <laughs> <laughs> I get a bit wound up by the beach. I find the sand slightly annoying. It gets, kind of gets everywhere. And I'm about to quote... Star Wars Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, and the legend- there's If you don't know, there's a legendary line in uh, Episode 2, Attack of the Clones, where Anakin Skywalker, while trying to sort of chat up uh, Padme Amidala, it goes on this kind of bizarre rant about sand. It's like, I hate sand. It's scratchy and it gets everywhere. <laughs> uh, not like you, you're soft. Like, it's just so weird. It's a, hang on. What, where are my lightsaber battles? What's going on here? Why am I hearing about sand? How much money did it cost to hear about sand? Millions. Come on, George.
0: I was like, you know what I like about you? You're very self contained. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, sorry. I, don't, I just, um, I, I just realised I was quoting uh, Anakin Skywalker. Hmm. Something which I often do. But <laughs> I try to keep it out of my podcasting, you know? So anyway, Seneca's on the beach.
0: Seneca's on the beach. And then no one else goes on the beach for centuries, apparently. Okay. One funny thing about the history of science that I'm noticing over time is that nothing happens in the Middle Ages. (laughs) Middle Ages, everyone just kind of closed up shop and did their own thing, which is probably not true. I would assume that there's a a gap in historiography and there are probably people out there screaming at me going, we are trying to address this. Mm. But, so, but anyway, th- there isn't that much happening, apart from one thing that is actually quite cool, which is the use of sunlight to prevent suppuration and scarring in uh, smallpox patients. Oh. So it was described in the *Rosa Medicinae* by John of Gadston. I don't know; it's it's ancient English. I don't know how <laughs> else to pronounce it. It was in fourteenth century, and so this back was quite impressive. But other than that, just nothing has happened. No one was sunbathing until 1903. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. There were there were things in the meantime, but a, a key date in, in the modern history of sunbathing for medicinal purposes in 1903. When a Nobel Prize for medicine was awarded for a refinement of John of Gadson's technique, so the smallpox guy. Danish doctor Neil Finsen had demonstrated that ultraviolet light can kill bacteria and applied this knowledge to the treatment of uh, lupus vulgaris, um, a skin condition also known as skin tuberculosis. So he developed ways of isolating the correct section of the spectrum because it was just UV light, first by using quartz lenses and filters. And then in 1890, he created a UV lamp, thereby ending reliance on actual sunlight of course, sunlight was already used in, in other ways, but at that point it, it started being used as a cure for tuberculosis in, in a more kind of focused way. So the pioneers were three doctors Arnold Rickley, Oscar Bernhard, and Auguste Rollier. Rickley came up with the slogan water is good, the air is better, and most of all, the sunlight. Uh-huh. which is something that is quoted over and over again in the literature about this. It was like the inspirational motto of this particular school of medicine. I feel
1: like that needs a little jingle below it. It needs to have a little song, a little tune. Yeah. Water is good, air is better, but most of all, sunlight. (laughs) (laughs) But like, in tune. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) We can work on that. Yeah. Um. So Bernard and Rolier started practicing heliotherapy, uh, that is the correct name for sunlight cure, Mm -hmm. heliotherapy, Mm -hmm. in Swiss Sampdoria in uh, 1899 and 1903, respectively. Heliotherapy was also practiced on the French and Italian Riviera uh, between Cannes and San Remo. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, the... um, the Institute in San Remo is still there. Um, oh. My parents used to own a house there, and it's still there. It's on the beach, and uh, you can go look at it and go, oh, look, this is where people used to come. It's quite nice. There's a botanical garden as well. That's lovely. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's quite lovely, yeah. So then it was exported in the US, this model of heliotherapy, through going somewhere, where dedicated institutes started popping up including a spectacular place called the Desert Sanatorium, opened in 1925 by Dr. and Metzger. It's such a handsome Spanish revival building. It's so beautiful. I'll put the, the pic on Instagram because it's so cool. Mm-hmm. And it looks like... Okay, so just picture how you would build a palace to sunshine. Oh. That's it.
1: That sounds lovely.
0: It's amazing.
1: <laughs> I want to go there now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't
1: exist anymore. Oh, oh, that's very a shame. sad, yeah. Um, so y- y- I can't go there. Listeners can't go there. But if you want to see it, go to our Instagram account. It's at Podcast, uh, And we're also on Twitter, at Wondercuppered. Go there. We tweet things. Follow us. We'll all have fun. It's going to yeah. be delightful. And while you're clicking buttons as well, it really helps us if you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. This helps us get the word out so that we can make more of these so if you're enjoying this podcast please do subscribe why not leave us a review why not make it five stars hey look it's just a suggestion you don't have to do it
0: (laughs) i mean it's not like all our reviews are five stars so far they are they're all five stars like are you gonna be the one fucker (laughs) who doesn't (laughs) give us five stars really
1: it's a very real risk if you don't click the five star button yeah. <laughs> Imagine the rays of sunshine giving you heliotherapy when you click the five star button. <laughs> Are we pushing this a bit much? We might be. Might be a yeah. little bit. So anyway, that's <laughs> that's all of us on social and iTunes and stuff. It's actually not even called iTunes now, it's called Apple Podcasts. Ugh. <sighs> anyway, there was a beautiful Spanish revival sunlight palace in the desert. In the desert. But it's not there anymore
0: said so sanatoria themselves were not an innovation at the time health spas had um, existed since the 16th century just based on the vague idea that getting out of cities was good for you so the innovation was a specific use of sunlight to cure things and you know as we said there, are, there is some real kind of scientific basis for it so by the 1920s sunlight was basically considered a panacea which there wasn't so much scientific <laughs> basis for. I'm just going to talk about the, one of the regimes that were adopted in one of these spas and then became sort of fashionable and so others started practising it as well. It's called the Nordrak regime and it prescribed that patients get up at sunrise, walked barefoot to the top of a hill Gradually removing clothing as they <laughs> ascended to the top of the hill. This was um, gender segregated, so it was sex segregated. So then they would be butt naked by the time they were at the top of the hill and they would do sports
1: <laughs> in open
0: air. And forgive me for the childish um, joke, but... Um, The description actually talks about ball games, (laughs) so I'm just picturing a bunch of naked men doing ball games.
1: Was there, by any chance, a booming industry in telescopes in the town over? (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? Like you, you you move into this house. You've got a beautiful house with a beautiful view on the mountain, on the hill, and then maybe two or three years later, you can't look out the window in the morning. (laughs) There's all these naked people jumping up and down on top of it. <laughs> yeah. Neighbours from hell.
0: Yeah. And disertine was left in everywhere. So like you, you couldn't have a house <laughs> in like Germany in on the mountain you know, no. Uh Austrian mountains, no, that could happen. Switzerland, that could happen. Like there was nowhere you could go without having this. This happening.
1: The hills are alive with the sound of jiggling.
0: <laughs> okay, so we, we have been children now. <laughs> um, let's get to serious matters, mm. such as the Spanish influenza, which now we all know about because um, a lot of insight from the Spanish influenza has been brought in to bear when covid-19 started Mm. spreading things about
1: second waves that sort of thing were very were observed quite keenly with Mm. the spanish influenza
0: yeah one thing that is not as well known so the, the spanish influenza happened in 1918 just to um so pretty much um a century ago um So one thing that is not very well known, but it has been considered in in research, is the fact that sunlight was actually instrumental to curing people at the time. Not curing the influenza itself. Trump. Exactly. What happened was that the flu was spreading and was particularly vicious in places that were crowded and dark. So that is one of the reasons why Boston... In the US was apparently quite uh, heavily affected, until they realised that patients exposed to sunlight healed better. Now, this is probably because complications were a major source of mortality. People wouldn't die of influenza, they would die of the consequences of the infection. And these consequences were eased by exposure to open air.
1: Things like pneumonia, yeah. that sort of thing.
0: Yeah. So, after all that, all sorts of sound lamps started being created. They were sold by people with various um, credentials. It's kind of hard to work out which were actually effective and which weren't. Like the, the spectrum of competence goes from Nobel Prize winner to, and I quote, crank. Fun fact for you Dr. John Harvey Kellogg who uh, invented the word granola, devised cornflakes in order to stop people from masturbating, also invented one of them. So one of these lamps. Okay. I'll leave to the audience to gauge at which end of the spectrum we might want to place him.
1: <laughs>
0: Not going to say anything. So one thing, though, that everyone was clear about was that the sun should be taken under strict medical supervision. In fact, sunlight was also considered potentially dangerous. And guess who was at the forefront of sunbathing hesitancy at the time?
1: Um, was it the guy on the front of the Quaker's Oats packet? <laughs> no, Coco Monkey.
0: <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> um, it was more. I was more talking about a nation, and the nation was Britain. Ah, which makes sense given that they hadn't seen any. <laughs> so. <laughs> What is this sunlight like everyone speaks of? I don't know. <laughs> it must be some kind of foreign uh, malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> so, those who did experience sunshine did it abroad. Uh, you know, Brits that experienced sunshine did it abroad. I mean,
1: when we're the- talking like continuous periods of strong sunshine, because obviously, it is sometimes sunny in Britain. Eleanor is currently uh, looking out of the window where we're recording this. It's sort of sunny.
0: I'm very sceptical about this claim. I've (laughs) lived here for eight years. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it is is sometimes sunny in Britain, but exactly not for long periods of time. And people tend to panic as soon (laughs) as the temperature hits 27. Like, (laughs) during one in air quotes, heat wave. a few years ago when I was an intern in a radio station, we were all, all, all as interns were sent outside to find fans, electric fans, because people were dropping dead on the stairs and in the studios. <laughs> and um, John Lewis, which is, if you're not familiar with this massive department store, ran out of fans that day. There were no fans. <laughs> and, I mean, I've ranted about this in air conditioning already, but some of the people who were like, oh my God, I'm going to melt to the ground, call my mother, were still wearing long-sleeved shirts. Yeah. But anyway, um, I will (laughs) compose myself now to speak about (laughs) how the British uh, upper classes used to experience sunshine abroad in their travels to Italy and Greece, where they went, obviously, for cultural reasons. But also in the colonies, because the colonies were in the tropics. So this takes a a very interesting turn. I was about to say a dark turn, but it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was thought that long exposures to sunlight would be very dangerous for people of white complexion. Mm -hmm. Sunstroke was the thing that everyone was scared of a doctor in the bengal medical corps thought that the only way to prevent sunstroke was to cover the entire upper body suggesting various contraptions including a metalized curtain
1: <laughs> which to me sounds
0: like a bad idea yes oh you're warm here's a medieval armor for you <laughs>
1: <laughs> clank clank, clank.
0: <laughs> um Eventually, he came up with... Something.
1: Arise, uh, Galahad. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, eventually, he landed on something a bit uh, less unwieldy, <laughs> which was a wide-brimmed hat, which became known as the pith helmet or a solar top eye. It's a very iconic part of colonial wardrobe. Mm,
1: it screams colonialism, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, we, again, we'll put one on Instagram.
1: It's that kind of cream-white hat with the kind of double dome. It's got a dome on top and then a sort of a a curved brim around it.
0: Yeah, that one.
1: That one.
0: That one. So the the medical reason for covering up also involved preventing something called tropical neurasthenia, which is not recognised as a disease anymore, which was thought to affect white people in the colonies. So this is... Okay, just... Warning, we're getting into proper like race science territory here, which at the time was just mainstream science.
1: Nowadays, this is largely discredited, even though it is not as discredited as it should be.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it still pops up um, in science and we should probably talk about it at some point because it is quite appalling. You know, people would think that these things don't happen anymore. Oh, yes, they do at the time it was much more blatant though so the the idea was that humankind was divided up into races that were in a hierarchy with guess who at the top hey hey. white people and so this was the sort of theoretical framework right so white people were radically different from others
1: yeah the groups of people considered to be further down the chain
0: yes Tropical neurasthenia was described in a book published in 1905 by Dr. Chas Edward Woodruff. The book was called The Effects of Tropical Light. He contended that sunlight contained something called actinic rays, not a thing, which would penetrate the cells and damage the protoplasm, also not a thing, in the cells, thereby weakening the body. So the catch was that Aryan people in many quotes, not having sufficient pigmentation to block the rays were the only ones sub- susceptible to this disease. So it was basically impossible for whites to live in tropical areas. This theory was bolstered by the budding physics of radiation, which was emerging at the time. So appealing to rays sounded very scientific and kind of everyone kind of nodded along and went, oh, yes, rays, I've heard of that. And so, uh, Madame Curie said things. So the diagnosis of tropical neurasthenia was very vague. Early signs were described by another author as, quote, maintaining a perfect score in bridge party attendance, (laughs) incessant novel reading, guilty, excessive smoking, and malicious gossip.
1: (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow, those actinic rays are powerful. I know, right? Especially if they can improve your bridge score
0: so yeah wow so at this point you can think okay this is racist because it's based on race science but you know if it causes whites to just fuck off (laughs) then maybe there's a silver lining here except uh, one no they did not (laughs) they stayed there very much for a very long time wearing hats and two if you can picture it it actually gets worse Advanced neurasthenia was thought, among other things, to make the patient, the patient being, of course, a man, overly sexual. So there were things like excessive masturbation, impotence, or sex with local women, which was considered particularly troublesome because any children coming out of the union between a white man and a woman of colour would contribute to the, in many quotes, degeneration of the white race. And this was all very explicit. I'm not reading into anything. Mm. Like, this is just something that was considered mainstream medicine. Okay. So we should probably have a word about degeneration. What does it mean? Degeneration theory was the idea that white races were evolutionarily superior to non-white races and that evolution could be reversed. So mixing races would take humankind to an earlier stage of development. Degeneration could also happen within individuals by adopting certain behaviours normally related to excess, like drinking too much or too much sex or too much sunlight, in this case. On top of the risk of mixing through being too sexually adventurous, Woodruff thought that the changes in the cells could lead the individual person to degenerate as well losing all the features that he considered exclusive to white men, such as superior intellect and character. White women could also degenerate, but no one really cared about it because women were already considered to occupy a lower place than men in the evolutionary scale. So the, the main worry was about irregular menstruation because, you know, Aryan children ought to come out of somewhere. Mm. And this this whole thing was mixed with... The ideology of the white man's burden which is how colonialism was partly justified so white people couldn't just leave Um, so they had to stay in the colonies all covered up but not for too long otherwise it would go native so this was this idea of not staying for too long in the tropics essentially this worry of degeneracy for white people was present at home as well in northern European nations if in a slightly different way The idea was that if you get too little sun, so again, we're going for excesses here, right? Mm. Too much or too little. Or you don't stay outdoors enough, then that's bad as well. And the worry there was that if white people didn't stay healthy, then other races would encroach upon them and kind of take over, uh, which of course was considered to be a very bad thing. So the idea that being outdoors in the sun was good had some interesting consequences on culture in the 20s and 30s. One of them was the birth of the youth groups, like the Scouts, that encouraged young people to spend time outdoors. And this was an expression of what has been called muscular Christianity. And that's the idea that germinated in British public schools, which if you're not familiar with the British system, they are not public.
1: They are literally private. (laughs) Yes, yes. There is some difference between a private school and a public school, but effectively speaking, they're both private. They're not state schools.
0: Yeah. So if you talk about public schools, they're the kind of schools where people like Boris Johnson come out of. Like hmm. It's where posh people come out of. Yeah. So this idea of mus- muscular Christianity meant that you had to promote health through a simple diet, abstinence from alcohol and tobacco, and just general moral decency.
1: This sounds very similar to Kellogg.
0: Yes. Mm. Also, reflection was considered bad for you. So spending time indoors was bad, partly because it would make you think too much and no one wants you to think too much, because that's bad. <laughs> mm. um, so that's when basically being outdoorsy as sort of a cultural trope started, right? Because it is, it is a cultural trope that is not universal, like, let's, let's say this, mm. because some people who live in Northern Europe or the States might not know that, but the idea that someone is an outdoorsy person is not universal. It's something that it's very much culturally constructed. In Britain, it was constructed middle-class environment. Being healthy also meant being productive, So, laziness was a sign of degeneracy, again, right? And guess who was lazy? Two classes in particular, the super upper classes, so the aristocracy, and the unemployed. So, aristocrats were criticized for their, and I quote, moral debauchery, and were often characterized as pale, and that was a negative characterization for them the working classes were also at risk since they mostly lived in crowded cities and sometimes would find themselves out of work and in general are characterized as lazy um so in order to keep them on the straight and narrow social reformers promoted the creation of leisure centers which still exist and are very much a part of british life so something good happened there right
1: um, and your modern british leisure centre i'm not sure exactly how they were conceived back then but your your modern british leisure centre usually has a swimming pool tennis courts some kind of multi-use courts maybe some football pitches uh that sort of thing mm-hmm. football pitches if you're lucky yeah but it'll have like indoor sporting facilities yeah basically
0: yeah, and at the time, they were even more extensive than that. So the first two that were built in London, if you're around and care to visit them, were the Peckham Health Centre and the Finsbury Health Centre. So one south, one north. There were these experimental environments where you could go to the doctors. There were G- what we would now call GPs, so general uh, practitioners, but also there was a gym, there was a swimming pool, but there was also a theatre. There was a dance hall. There was a nursery, there was a cafe and there was a games room. So it was a place for people to stay together. It was also probably what now we would call a community centre, which is also an extremely British thing. (laughs) Um, And I think it's a delightful institution, really. I mean, apart from the extremely problematic roots of all this, it it is good for a community to have a place to to Mm. stay. Wonder cupboard. So still talking about the cultural aspect of this. An organisation called the Sunlight League was founded in 1924 by a doctor called Caleb Salibi. It promoted all sorts of measures to be taken in order to fully harness the healthy power of sunshine. One of their branches was the Men's Dress Reform Party. Okay. Which was funded in 1929 by a radiologist called Alfred Jordan. Because of course, if you are to sunbathe as prescribed, clothing needs to be on your side. You can't sunbathe in those Victorian woollen swimming suits, right? So I think I think we talked about reform dress a few episodes ago. It, it was this movement that was trying to free, especially women, from cumbersome clothing that didn't allow them to participate in various activities, including, for instance, research expeditions. Mm. So, the Men's Dress Reform Party was all about menswear, of course. Their demands were varied. Uh, Again, other quote. Most members wish for
1: shorts.
0: (laughs) A few for the kilt. Nearly all hate trousers. Some plead for less heavy materials and less padding. Others for brighter colours. But the villain of the piece... Is the collar stud. A whale has gone up throughout the land. Man is clutching at his throat and crying.
1: <laughs> Isn't it brilliant? It's amazing. Wow. What do we want? Shorts. <laughs> when do we want them? Now. Amazing. So, what was stopping them from just chopping the ends off their trousers?
0: Oh, nothing. They would do that. That's the thing. Right. And it's just, I think it was considered inappropriate right. because you had so to dress in a certain way.
1: They weren't necessarily arguing for the existence of these things. They were arguing f- that uh, the rules of society should change to make it acceptable. Yeah. I, do you know what? I'm with them. I know, right? Yeah, I think it's good. I, to be honest, I feel the same way nowadays. I mean, less, I mean, shorts are widely available. Yeah. But you go into a menswear shop... And like so you could okay, this is my experience shopping. You go into a shop, it's usually the women's wear, yeah the first thing you see, and you see interesting shapes, bright colours, patterns, interesting design. And I'm aware that obviously with this array of choice comes a certain amount of pressure to dress well and in a certain way for women. But then you go, let's say downstairs into the man dungeon <laughs> where suddenly everything is brown and grey and I'm, I'm sick of it, I want colours and interesting things and shapes and patterns and prints, not just like, oh yeah I'm a man and I'm a shopper at the, at the mega shop and I'm just really cool actually, I'm a bit too cool for, for, for pink uh, unless it's like pink but it's in a really boring shape <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, it is much more fun to dress as a woman or someone who is happy to embrace more feminine clothing, isn't it? Mm. So part of this colour thing is interesting because part of the reason why menswear is dark comes down to things that were happening at this time in history. So men's clothing was basically impossible to wash because of the materials it was made of and so the way you would make it aesthetically acceptable so the way to hide stains was to have dark colors right so that's why you have to wear shit trousers actually you don't i I think to embrace prints in a very enthusiastic way (laughs) i appreciate that about you you. it's
1: a shame about all the stains but
0: (laughs) One thing you you would have appreciated probably was Men's Reform Dress Day. (laughs) Which they didn't do a a, a parade as such or anything like that. But you had to go to work or wherever you had to go wearing, quote, hygienic dress. Mm -hmm. Because it was considered hygienic as in healthful Uh, for promoting of health to wear different clothing. They also had rallies with prizes for the best outfit.
1: Oh, wow. I want to bring them back.
0: (laughs) You should do that. (laughs) One event of this kind happened at Alexandra Palace, a massive prestigious Mm. venue in 1937 and was covered, if rather sceptically, by the BBC radio at the time. So I'm I'm quoting from one of the, um, I don't know, the people who did the commentary. (laughs) I don't know what you would call that. Where the man's lower limbs look the best encased in slightly flattened, parallel tubes may be open to doubt. But at least there seems no great aesthetic advantage in cutting the tubes short at the knee.
1: <laughs> wow. Shade.
0: <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> you know, this, this was, was frivolous in many ways. But there was also something more going on that had to do with the performance of gender. So... After this point, masculine styles evolved to be more comfortable, but also to make men look hot, you know, like athletic and manly and big shoulder pads and all that. Mm. Like, if you look in a 30s suit, it makes you look like fucking Hulk.
1: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very yeah very broad-shouldered, the double-breasted look to to give the appearance of width and loads of material in the trousers as well, particularly... At the back, people's legs looked super chunky.
0: Yeah. And by the way, I love myself a double-breasted 30s blazer. I'm, uh, I'm partial to one. For, for, I mean, for myself. So, mm. But anyway, they're, they're great. I think they're great. So part of the reason why this look worked was that they were one half of the extremely heteronormative ideal of the hygienic family that was composed of an athletic, broad-shouldered white man, smouldering, I would say, and a specific kind of white woman. So, white women within this framework was targeted were targeted as mothers. The cult of being outside of the city in a natural environment was translated into a movement that promoted natural childbirth reintroducing the crouching position in childbirth, for instance, was a result of this way of thinking. I'm saying reintroducing because that is something that was abandoned with hospitalisation during childbirth, but it's always been happening before that. But at this point, it was reintroduced as an official medical thing. And interestingly, this rolls back to India again. So, Dr. Catherine Vaughan, which was one of the most prominent advocates of natural childbirth, spent some time in Kashmir. She observed that there was a difference in health between upper-class women, which were living in cities and spending most of their time indoors, and poorer boat women who lived mostly outdoors. So upper-class women had bone issues, but women didn't. Boat women gave birth more easily with fewer related issues, and they never went to a hospital to, to give birth. So Dr. Vaughan pinned the difference down to the time spent in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so we can see a movement towards introducing sunlight in people's everyday life, right? And, and one instrument to achieve this is architecture. Like how do you make buildings more conducive to sunlight? One of the first people to point at the need to build the RAM sunlight was Jean Etienne Dominique Esquirol, who was a psychiatrist. He spent a few years in the early 1800s, so we're going back a little bit here. He was, he was touring insane asylums in Europe, noting how living conditions were awful. I'm quoting here I saw them naked, covered in rags. Having only straws to protect themselves from the cold dampness of the pavement on which they laid. I saw them grossly fed, deprived from air to breathe and from water to quench their thirst. I saw them in tiny, dirty, filthy, airless rooms without light, enchained in dens where one would fear to enclose ferocious beasts. This is what I have seen almost everywhere in France. This is how the insane are treated almost everywhere in Europe. So after that, in 1818, he sent a memoir to the French Ministry of the Interior about this. And then he led the construction of several hospital buildings where sunlight was privileged, among other things, obviously, more comfortable places and so forth. At the same time, the working classes were suffering from what Salibi, who was the guy who started the Sunlight League, later called diseases of darkness, which were tuberculosis and rickets. In order to address this problem, in Britain, in 1875, the Public Health Act established bylaw streets, meaning that each house needed to have an exposed facade opening on the street. And that's terrace housing, you know, that is very common in industrial British cities. Now, that's, that's when they were established, essentially. The concern about the health of the working classes was also shared by some industrialists who would build houses for their workers, which was very common at the time, right? So the founder of Lever Brothers, which is now Unilever, had a place called Port Sunlight built in 1890. He was a huge fan of the sun cure. He slept outside on the balcony. And when he came up with his Soap, which was innovative at the time, because it was already cut up and wrapped. You know, at the time you would buy soap by weight in a in a grocery shop, or while his soap was already in chunks.
1: Convenient bars.
0: Convenient bars, exactly. So they were all in these individual wrappers, and the wrappers had the word "sunlight" printed on them, because you know it was kind of related to health and hygiene and and so on. So we also talked about how sanatoria became that place where you go specifically in order to absorb sunlight and that was reflected in a specific design that became widespread and that's you know rooms for guests lined up alongside long balconies which is something that if you have grown up in continental europe you have seen like i've stayed in some of these places that are now like youth hostels and and stuff like that there's there's a lot on the mountains around my my hometown turin northern italy So this way even people with mobility problems could access the sunlight very easily. um, because even if they were on a wheelchair they could just be wheeled out of the of the room and and get some sunlight. And this is a design that then became popular in holiday resorts, right? Now this is what you see in hotels at the seaside because that's also something that people do. Mm. You know, they go there too get sun. And you know, that like the line was quite flimsy between holiday and and cure at that point, mm. right? So tourism also developed in those places where initially there were sanatoria, like the French Riviera and, and so on and so forth. So let's talk about now. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about this history Is there anything that is still in use that we're still applying? So, disclaimer, we are not in the business to give medical advice. Neither of us is a doctor. We don't give medical advice. We are not giving medical advice. We're just telling you that light therapy is still in use in medicine. You know, to do that, you use a portable device called a bright light therapy device or BLT.
1: (laughs) I'm very happy to use a BLT for my health. (laughs) (laughs) i've heard this called a sad lamp as well seasonal affective disorder
0: yeah because that's one of the applications Mm. so so do you know what a seasonal affective disorder is
1: Uh, not uh, only that it's something which is quite loosely defined as being negative side effects of it being cold and dark and wet all winter in Britain. Uh, (laughs) But that's my understanding of it. There may be a a more medically sound definition.
0: Well, I mean, the definition is basically experiencing depressive symptoms, but only for part of the year. Mm -hmm. So the part of the year where it's dark. It was a condition that was described by Dr. Norman Rosenthal for the first time, a South African doctor working in Washington who suffered from it. And he also suggested the use of light devices to Mm -hmm. to treat it. So yeah, so you just kind of expose yourself to this bright to the BLT for a given amount of time every day and there are settings that that tell you how much light you're you're being exposed to, essentially. Light therapy is also used as an additional tool in treating depression, both unipolar and bipolar. So if you think about the fact if you think about the Cappadocian doctor that had described bipolar disorder for the first time he was Mm. already using sunlight Mm. i think it's quite impressive that that's still part of the treatment obviously people get medication there's all sorts of thankfully there's all sorts of things that you can do sleep disorders are also treated using these sun lamps because it helps by stimulating the production of melatonin in the brain which is the hormone that regulates circadian rhythms Mm -hmm. and apparently there's some evidence that premenstrual symptoms might also be alleviated by sunlight. Now, there is, you know, we're talking about the Spanish influenza, which is often likened to coronavirus, to the current coronavirus pandemic. We've talked about Trump, we've talked about all that. The evidence we have at the moment is that sunlight does two things. One, it inactivates coronaviruses on surfaces. So up to 90% of viruses present on a surface, so not on a person, on Mm -hmm. a material surface that is exposed to sunlight can be inactivated that way. It's a study that came out literally like two weeks ago. And that means that it might be less likely for you to catch coronavirus in the outdoors, essentially. It doesn't mean that if you sun yourself, then you're fine. Mm -hmm. It's got nothing to do with that.
1: And we should just point out as well that we're going to link to this study. We, it is not a yeah. study. We're not, this is not someone on the internet said there was a study. Like We, we can show you the study. Like We don't do that. <laughs> no. And, and if anyone ever says to you, oh, there's a study, and they can't tell you what it was, don't, don't believe them. There's no yeah. point believing them. It could be anything. They could be making it up.
0: Yeah, that's why we have a references section mm-hmm. at the end of episodes. And also, you know, give credit mm. where it's due. So anyway, so we're going to I'm going to mention this study in the in the references and then we're going to put it on the website as well. Another study that came out, I think in May, is about treating pulmonary issues that are related to the COVID-19 infection and it's an extrapolation from the Spanish influenza epidemic. No clinical research has been done on this yet. They say so in the study. They're just saying this is an option, this is an avenue of research that we might want to explore. Doesn't mean that they have results. So, wear a mask. (laughs)
1: That's
0: what I'm saying. (laughs) Reduce contact with others, wash your hands, wear a mask. Like, you can get pretty masks now. Yeah. They're cool. (laughs) Masks are cool. Please.
1: (laughs) That's it. And if you're proud to wear a mask, there's nothing you can be more proud of than having a mask tan line. <laughs> <laughs> you look
0: like Yogi the Bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah exactly. <laughs> we need to that.
0: bring back Yogi the Bear. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Shall we do the references? Let's
1: do the references. Which well, is
0: very important today. Mm.
1: And now, the references.
0: So, the bulk of the history of of sunshine is from rise and shine sunlight technology and health by Simon Carter which was published in 2007 and it's an excellent book i do recommend it there's all sorts of stuff in there that i haven't even touched upon and that i'm I'm sure you will enjoy reading also it's it's an sts book so there's a lot of analysis and, and interesting insight that you might that you might enjoy
1: and sts stands for
0: science and technology studies
1: cool
0: which is what i do <laughs> this is what this is. This is this is an STS podcast. Like, don't tell anyone, but that's what it is. Other papers that I've used for history: phototherapy from ancient Egypt to the new millennium by Anthony Macdonald. Light therapy in disorders: a brief history with physiological insights by Jeremy Schukron and Pierre Alexis Geoffroy. I think I've also looked up the paper that Doctor. Caleb Salibi published in Nature in the 20s, sometime in the 20s, called The Advance of Heliotherapy, which is quite a fun little read. Another bit of history is from the Jeremiah Metzger Lecture, Jeremiah Metzger and the Era of Heliotherapy by Joseph S. Alpert. And finally, the two studies that I was referencing at the end, one of them is simulated sunlight rapidly inactivates SARS-CoV-2 on Surfaces by Shana Ratna Shumati and others published on the 15th of July on the Journal of Infectious Diseases the other one is Light as a Potential Treatment for Pandemic Coronavirus Infections Perspective by Chikuka Samuel and Wimeka on the Journal of Photochemistry and Photobiology and that was published in May cool but full links on the website if you want to look them up
1: wondercupboard.com that's our website and, and don't forget to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts as well.
0: Five stars. Five stars. Five stars. So, what have we learned today?
1: Today, we've learned that you've got to fight for your right to shorts. Wonder <laughs> Cupboard.